Our scripture lesson this morning is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, beginning at verse 22 and extending to verse 59. On the following day, when the people who were standing on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone, however, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread, and the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, They also got into boats and came to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus, therefore, answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except who is, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I, I am the bread of life. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. The Gospel of our Lord. Praise be to you, Christ. Please be seated. When I teach world religions for EKU, one of the things that I like to emphasize is that bumper sticker you occasionally see on cars that has all those religious symbols that says coexist is absolute ludicrous. The fact of the matter is, is that the world's religions are highly contradictory. Even if you pull Christianity out of the mix, they're highly contradictory. Uh, they don't start in the same place. They don't end in the same place. They don't seek the same goal. The idea that the world religions somehow are all one solid message is just nonsense. But there is a common theme among all of them except one. And that is the theme of human works righteousness. While the religions may be going in different places, in Hinduism, you're on the wheel of samsara and you're being reincarnated over and over again and you want to get off the wheel. Um, you work toward that, though. You have certain goals and works that you perform to manage to get off the wheel of samsara in islam you have a completely unknowable uh, monotheistic god but he is pleased by works of human righteousness you will work those works and allah will judge you uh, they may be going different places but the way you get there is the same it is by human effort and drive that seems to be exactly where fallen flesh has its default setting. And it makes certain sense because the first covenant, the covenant of works, was about serving God in perfection. If you do these things, you will live. And so human flesh assumes that when the question of seeking greater things comes up, wherever you happen to want to go, you will go there by human effort. 
And those who are speaking to Christ here in this dialogue go there in verse 28. Jesus has introduced himself as what God is doing in the world. He is the bread of life that comes down from heaven. He gives life to the world. But the moment that they begin to consider eternal things, their mind immediately goes to what works should we do that we can work the works of God? Christ wasn't taking the discussion there, but it was the natural way for the flesh to go. He is speaking of uh, being at one with God. So what, what are the works? What are the five Jane vows that we have to fulfill? What, are the, what is the eightfold path of Buddhism that we have to walk? What is the disciplines of Hindu philosophy that we have to get right to work the works of God. It is a sign of the flesh's sinfulness that it is focused on works righteousness. You would not think so. You would think that if, if you were focused on works righteousness, there would be a certain humility to that, but not really. It's actually a matter of pride. You have called me to come into God's presence. Okay, fine. Give me the list of works that I have to do so that I may walk in his presence. It is what the flesh will say. You know that we who are Reformed Christians emphasize that man cannot believe on his own. It is an impossibility. And yet, teaching that, you need to know that we are not saying that this inability isn't necessarily a willful thing. It is, in fact, very much a willful thing. Uh, you can see it here in those who are talking to Christ. Christ says, I'm what God's doing. And all the way through what he is saying here, he is emphasizing the concept of belief, but they turn to works. And more than that, in the next verse, when Christ says, now belief is what is central here, their next statement is, what work will you show us? What miracle will you show us to prove that everything you're saying about yourself is correct? And then they say, well, you know, Moses fed us, hint, hint, nudge, nudge. They are not able to believe, but the problem is in their will, not in their intellect. See, the truth is, the very thing that they are talking about is something they have already just seen. Literally, the day before, our Lord has worked his uh, greatest miracle short of raising from the dead. And everybody who is talking to him has already partaken of that. They have already been fed miraculously. And so the idea that they turn to our Lord and say, well, what work will you show us? And then they quote the very work he already did. Would you interpret that as willful or not willful? 
is that a matter of the intellect or is that a matter of something different? The, the truth is human intellect, if it were capable, if it were free from the emphasis of the flesh, the human intellect would have no problem at all this very moment seeing the hand of God on literally everything. The truth is, is that creation itself is from the hand of God. Everything about creation testifies to God. God's providence and preservation of creation is there to be seen by an honest human intellect. Uh, there is no real intellectual problem with accepting our Lord and his claims. But men don't do that because they are willfully unbelieving. They are not able to believe, but the problem is in the will. They can't because they won't. They won't because they don't have the ability to will. But it's gamey, and it's something that leaves them guilty. Because they are playing games with God, they are playing games right in his face, when a sane person would see very clearly the work of God. Problem is, there aren't any real sane people. All the way through uh, Christ's teaching, Christ from verse 29 emphasizes what God desires from man is belief. What is it to work the works of God? What is it you want to put down on your paper to say, okay, I've got this done? Well, it's to believe. And the word means to trust in, to cling to, to rely upon. Uh, Christ emphasizes what God wants from you is to put your trust, your dependence, everything that you hope in, uh, put it on him. Put it on God and what God is doing in Christ. Um, did you know that in Scripture there is only one place where at least in the English translation, I'm not sure if it's true throughout, but in the English translation, there is only one place in Scripture Jesus is said to marvel. And you would think that Jesus wouldn't tend to marvel, being that he is God the Son and, you know, he has all the divine attributes. God doesn't tend to marvel. But at one point in Scripture, the evangelists tell us Jesus is a God. Jesus marvels. It is Mark chapter 6 and verse 6. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So uh, what is it that even God in the flesh can look at man and say, what is wrong with you people? It is lack of belief. <coughs> belief is what God calls us to, and belief is poetically paired up with the concept of coming. In verse 29 and in verse 35, 
listen again. Uh, you believe in 29 and in 35, and Jesus said to them, I'm the bread of life who comes down. I, I'm the bread of life. He who comes to me. Uh, well, yeah, he who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. What does it mean to come to Christ? Uh, the general presentation of coming to Christ is usually, well, I have to kind of wrestle it through, and I have to walk to Christ. I have to turn around and go to Christ. But Christ says what coming to him is, is believing in him. It is not that you work it through and you develop belief, but belief itself is coming to him. And that is what God wants from men, but they will not do it because they are programmed to think about works righteousness and they are programmed to play with God. They are programmed not to have faith, even though it is intellectually unviable not to have faith. They will not come to him because they don't believe in him. If you emphasize to people, you must come to Christ, you must come to Christ. You need to make them aware what we're talking about is you must depend on Christ. That is the coming to him. And in our passage, our Lord shows us where that will come from. Only in the Father giving to Christ certain people do they believe or come to him. Jesus says in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Remember, Christ is uh, paralleling the concept of believing in him and coming to him. Christ looks at people who have physically come to him. They have come from the wilderness to find him in Capernaum. We're told they have come looking for Jesus. But our Lord says, you didn't really come to me, not in a true and spiritual way. You don't believe, you don't come to me unless the Father gives you to me. Now, what can be made of the term the Father giving them to Christ? Well, the first thing we have to understand is you cannot give to somebody that which you don't already have. The idea that there are human beings who are not in the hand of God, who are not owned of him, uh, those people don't exist. Anyone who believes in Christ the Father has given them to Christ and given them in a particular way. In the psalm that we sang today, Psalm 2, you see the Father speak to the Son. And the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. I will give you the peoples of the world. I'll give you the whole world. 
There is a real sense in which everything that Christ has accomplished in his ministry has resulted in God the Father giving literally the whole world to him. But what is said right after that in Psalm 2 is, you shall take the nations and you shall dash them to pieces like pottery. You shall be like a warrior holding an iron rod and smashing them to bits. This is not the giving of God that Christ is talking about here in John 6, because in John 6, Christ emphasizes these who are given to me, I'm not smashing them to pieces. I'm not ruling them with a rod of iron. Rather, three times our Lord will say, these will not be lost, and I will, quote, raise them up at the last day. It is the exact opposite imagery. In Psalm 2, the Father gives to the Son everything, and everything is destroyed in judgment. In John chapter 6, there is a giving to Christ, but Christ lovingly embraces this subset of people. He will not allow them to be lost, and uh, they have the hope of eternal life. And it is the Father who distinguishes who it is who is given to the Son. You see me, says Christ, but you don't see me. You are thinking of me, but you are not really thinking of me. You are employing your intellect, but it can't actually bring you to me, even though a free intellect would. The Father has to give you to me, and it is the Father's will who it is who is given to Christ. In verse 38, Jesus speaks to the Father, and he says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. There is a typical belief in much of the church, uh, the conservative church, not the liberal church, but in the conservative church, that the father is wrathful and angry, and the Lord Christ comes and he saves us from the father, which does happen. But there's the idea that the father is burning with anger. He is just filled with, with uh, anger at man, and the father would like nothing better than to destroy the world. He is waiting with bated breath to bring about the judgments that he does promise and will happen. The father wants that. He is just eager for that to happen. But the son steps into the way and says, no, father, uh, I would like some people to be saved. So I will be gracious to them. You're not really gracious. You're not really a lover of the world, but I am. And so I will deliver some people. Well, the entire tenor of the New Testament is the exact opposite. Christ speaks of God giving a chosen group of people to Christ that will be raised up in the last day, and he says, now I want you to know that this entire project didn't begin with me. I've come to do the will of my Father. My Father desires men to be saved, He desires men to believe and to come to me, and I'm just really doing what he tells me to. 
This is exactly like Christ's servant Paul will say later in the book of Galatians. In Galatians, Paul begins that letter with these words. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So from beginning to end, though God the Father is pictured as holy, perfect, righteous, just, without sin, he is not pictured as wanting to destroy humanity. He is pictured as wanting to save the elect. It is the will of the Father that those who believe be saved, and Christ is said to do his will. The Father loves those who is given to Christ, and he loves them both corporally and singularly. When you get into discussions about who it is that the Father has given to Christ, if you are talking with some theologically savvy people, especially uh, Romanists who know their theology and are actually well-trained intellectually, one of the things that they will say to you is that Yes, the Bible teaches there is a, a choice made by the Father for salvation for a certain group of people. But what you need to understand is that that is a corporate election. And what is meant by that is that, yes, God has chosen a certain group of people, but it's everyone who will have faith, and it's everyone who's in the church. God has chosen the church, but you yourself decide if you're going to be in that group of people. Uh, if you are outside of the church by your own will, then you're not elect. And if you're in the church by your will, then you are elect. And uh, when God uses the term election, he's talking corporately. Well, our Lord seems to be speaking directly to that in verse 39 and 40. In verse 39 and 40, Christ will repeat the phrase, and I will raise him up on the last day, or I will raise them up on the last day. It's one of the two places, there, there's three places in this dialogue where Christ says it. But these are literally back to back. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that all he has given me, of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Now, that sounds very corporate, and it is. The Lord Christ is picturing all those whom the Father will give to the Son, and he is speaking in plural, and he says, all of them that are given to me, I'm not going to lose any of them. I will raise it up at the last day, he's speaking of the corporate group. But then in the very next verse we read, and this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him, may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, if you take just a cursory reading of the two verses, it feels like Jesus has said the same thing twice. 
In fact, it, it's even structured in the same way. But there is a significant change in the second verse. Christ says the whole group is going to be saved. And then he speaks singularly of the individual. And he says, I want you to know I am not just talking about a corporate group. I'm literally talking about every single person that will make up that corporate group. God is not just looking at the world at a macro level and going, okay, anybody who comes into the ark, that's fine. God is saying everybody in the ark, and I will choose each and in individual that will be in that ark. Each individual person who will come to me, each individual person who will believe on me, the father knows that individual. Just like I will raise up the whole group at the last day, so I will raise up every single individual at the last day. It is not that I know a people, but I don't know individuals. I know every individual. Christ will speak of you and say, God knows every hair on your head. You don't know every hair on your head. Anybody here want to guess the amount of hairs on their head? I have no idea. It's much less than when I was 20. But I have no idea. But God knows. He knows the movement of every atom in your body. He knows not only every thought that crosses your mind, but what causes it to move there. There is nothing that the Father doesn't know. And the Father has not just made an amorphous group that if you get in, you're fine. The Father will give to me people who will believe. Left to yourself, you will not be able to believe because in the face of Almighty God, you yourself will be arrogant enough to play intellectual games to the end of time. You will not have the ability to believe because of who you are at the level of your will. But each individual person that comes to me, says Christ, the Father has given him to me. And he, I will raise up at the last day. There is an assurity in our Lord's promise. The Lord Christ says, it is the will of the Father that I lose nothing of what he has given me. And then Christ affirms, I won't lose any whom Christ has given to me. I am amazed at how the popularity of the idea of conditional election rises up in the history of the Christian church, generation after generation. It rises up in so many different places in so many different ways, but it's the same message. You have been given faith by the Father. You are in Christ. Now be very careful because Christ has saved you, but you have to keep yourself saved. You have to walk the walk. You have to talk the talk. And understand, by the way, that nothing I am saying is meant to encourage you not to walk the walk or talk the talk. But it is not in your hand whether Christ will lift you up in the last day. It is not in your hand whether you will be lost or not. It is in the hand of our Lord Christ. And our Lord Christ promises I will not lose anyone the Father has given to me. None of them, not a one of them. 
Has the Father given them to me so that they came to me and have faith? And they backslide, and they make a wreckage, and terrible things happen. Will they be lost? Christ says, I will not lose any that the Father has given to me, and I will raise him up on the last day. As you know, the Bible often has a poetic structure. Our Lord Christ, when he teaches, will oftentimes preach and teach in a poetic structure. And if something is said three times, uh, three is the number of God himself. That's right out of the Hebrew. Um, Christ three times comes to the, the ultimate pinnacle of his promise, and that pinnacle is the resurrection of the dead. I will raise him up at the last day. <coughs> I was a very young preacher. I was in my second pulpit. I was preaching on Easter at a uh, sunrise service. And I was preaching from 1 Corinthians 15. And my message was a very basic one in many ways. The message was, everything you're reading here is a literal truth. The Apostle Paul says, there will be a resurrection of the dead, that God will raise bodies back to life. Now, they will be very different bodies, and Paul goes into uh, detail about how those bodies will be different, but they will be actual bodies, and you will have spirits placed in bodies, and as man was created in the beginning, so effectively he will be, body and soul. And as we stand here in the graveyard, as the sun comes up, realize that everybody around us someday will stand up and join us. Uh, I was shocked when not only did I get pushback from that sermon, it actually came from people that I deeply respected, uh, the human intellect told them, and they told me, the resurrection of the dead is way too concrete of an idea. Yes, the Bible seems to teach the resurrection of the dead, but how can we imagine that bodies that die will live again? It, it seems scientifically impossible uh, the resurrection of the dead is some spiritually amorphous kind of thing where you live in a spiritual sense before the face of the Father. I was shocked. But in the years since then, I have come to realize there is no doctrine of the New Testament more offensive to our culture than the resurrection of the dead. I, I'm not really sure why. I'm still kind of working on why that is. But the very God who created you, body and spirit, so that you will be seated here before me and listening with physical ears, uh, your spirit taking in information through a body, the very God who arranged for you to be that way promises in Christ you will be that way again. The... Uh, 
the doctrine that we will only be spirit, that we will be transformed from bodies into some sort of energy being, that's Star Trek. That's not the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament promises that the culmination of what God is doing in Jesus Christ is the resurrection of the dead. And Paul says it, and he comes to this glorious pinnacle at the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So that when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Isn't it interesting that in the beginning of this discussion that our Lord is having, the first thing that people jump to is, what work shall I do to please God? Here, as Paul is ending his discussion of the resurrection, the sting of death is the law. And our Lord takes those he's talking to, to his ultimate pinnacle, which is the resurrection, and Paul makes the resurrection the ultimate of deliverance. Um, isn't it amazing how Pauline Jesus Christ is? I have made the mistake of joining Twitter. Uh, about three weeks ago, I decided to do that. You know, you know history and what's happening right now. Elon Musk bought it, so I wanted to see what's happening. Um, Go on Twitter, and one of the things, if you go looking for religious people, you will find, is there is a, uh, a common theme among the pompous and the blind that you have one religion of Jesus of Nazareth and another of Paul, and of course the pompous and the blind want to, quote, follow Jesus, and they say that with that pomposity in their voice. Our Lord is speaking of what God is doing in himself, and just like his apostle will make the ultimate moment of our salvation, the resurrection of the dead, just so our Lord makes that the ultimate moment. I will raise them up, says Christ. It is my promise to them. I will bring about the resurrection of the dead. As he will say later in our gospel, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Our Lord is preaching like Paul. And there's a reason for that. It's because Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle, as you know, is an office. And the term apostle predates our Lord's physical existence by about 100 years. An 
apostle was Caesar's legate that he would send out in his name to provinces far and wide, bearing his seal and bearing his uh, royal eagle. And when the apostle would speak, he would speak for Caesar, Caesar's words. What do you expect? When the apostle of Christ, our Lord, our Caesar, our ruler, our God, sends out a legate, do you expect the legate will speak on his own? Of course not. Jesus and his apostles speak with one voice. And that high and holy moment is promised, and it is coming. It is the word of God that the resurrection will take place. But now a question might enter your mind. Christ is using the resurrection of the dead as the the pinnacle of the salvation process. Isn't Christ going to raise all men from the dead? When Christ talks about the last judgment in Matthew 25, he pictures the sheep and the goats standing before him, and he says to the goats, go into judgment, and to the sheep, come into my presence. Has he not raised all men? The answer is yes or no. Uh, Bodily, perhaps, but how do you raise from the dead those who have never lived? You see, again, going back to the logic of the New Testament, Uh, The Apostle of Christ in uh, the book of Ephesians talks about who we were before the Father gave us to Christ and caused us to believe. And he says, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. The spirit of Christ, speaking through his apostle, looks at us and says, You're going to be raised up on the last day, but what you need to know is there's already been a resurrection that has happened. It is a resurrection of life in Christ. You're going to be raised up again on the last day because you were alive. But those who know not Christ, those whom the Father does not give to Christ, those who don't come to him in belief, they have never been alive to be raised again. They are dead this very moment. They are walking, they are talking, but they are in the grip of the spirit of the prince of the power of the air. They are addicted to sin, and they are dead in every principal way, except that they walk and talk for a little while. So when Christ promises the resurrection to his people, It is a continuation of a life that we have already received, if we believe. And that is why the focus on uh, what works should we do to work the works of God is so utterly sad for those who have come to Christ with as their lead question. 
Because those who are alive do living things. If you are alive, you breathe, you eat, you act, you engage in an active life because you're alive, right? Well, such is the holiness of God. The grace of God comes to us in Jesus Christ. The Father gives us to Christ when we are dead, and he makes us alive. The only people who can in any way work works that God will find pleasing are those the Father has given to Christ and given life to. You will never come to life by working. But if you are alive, you will never not work. Because that is the essence of being alive. And when the resurrection of the dead happens, and when we stand again in our bodies before the Lord, I have no idea what the natural laws will be like then. I have no idea what our perceptions will be like. It will be a totally different world, but it will be from the hand of him who gave us this world. And one of the things that we find in scripture about this world is God created us to work before the curse. He gave us to live an active life before his wrath. And so life will just expand at the resurrection. It will not be some passive, shade-like existence that Western philosophy has created. It will be a different living experience. The son will not lose anyone who is given to him, and we who are alive will be made even more alive. Such is the promise of God.